Welcome to Reading Genesis. My name is Stephen Longclaw. I'm a priest serving in the Anglican Church in North America and also a United States Navy chaplain. Join me as we discover the sacramental and enchanted world of the Bible through Reading Genesis together. When it comes to interpreting Genesis 6, we are against many interpretive challenges. I am influenced by one Eastern Orthodox priest and scholar, the Reverend Dr. Stephen DeYoung. I think his arguments on uh, Nephilim and uh, sons of God mingling with the daughters of men are compelling. And so I wanted to give credit where credit is due. I hope you enjoy the lesson. We are continuing our Bible study in Genesis chapter 6. Does everyone have a Bible that they can look through? Excellent. So we're in Genesis chapter 6. And uh, when, when I first started teaching this Bible study, I thought about titling it Reading Genesis Again for the First Time. Or Reading Genesis for the First Time Again. Because I, my, my intention in this Bible study is to point out a lot of the strange things that exist in the book of Genesis, but are things that we oftentimes miss. And I think the reason we oftentimes miss these strange things is because as 21st century Christians, uh, we have inherited from our forefathers and from uh, 19th century liberals and from the Enlightenment period of the 17th and 18th century, we have inherited a disenchanted worldview, meaning we don't believe in things like magic, or we don't believe in things like monsters, or we don't believe in things like, like what the mystics of other Christian generations would have just gladly believed. Not because, you know, magic and wizards are a thing like in Lord of the Rings or something, but because these things do exist because the spiritual realm is very real. We tend to think that the spiritual realm is something that is very disconnected from us, that, that the veil between the what we would call the physical realm and then the spiritual realm is actually a thick wall. But what we learn from Scripture is the veil between the spiritual realm and the physical realm is extremely thin. And oftentimes the spiritual realm breaks through into our physical realm. We see that happening every Sunday morning. The spiritual realm breaks through into the physical realm through worship, through prayer, through uh, receiving the Holy Communion meal, and at other times. And this is pretty commonplace. This was commonplace for, for other generations to think this way. And, and I'm hoping that by going through this Bible study, you'll, uh, you'll see that uh, our world that we inhabit is actually quite an enchanted world. It's enchanted by the Holy Spirit. But it is also, it's also enchanted by angels, but unfortunately, it is also enchanted by evil spirits and evil forces, uh, the realm that we cannot see. So with that, <laughs> let's jump into Genesis 6, and I think I have a couple faces going, oh my gosh, what are we talking about tonight? So Genesis chapter 6. By way of review, last week we, we looked at Cain's line and we looked at Seth's line. 
Real quick, I, I, I talked about how uh, Cain's line is interesting because it gets to a lot of the the descendants of Cain, which was the unrighteous line, right? Remember, Cain kills Abel. So this is the unrighteous line of Cain. They get to technology first. They have this hidden knowledge that they discover, things like metallurgy, you know, working with metals to create weapons. They discover things like music and instruments. Uh, they, they build a, a little civilization for themselves. And this all crescendos with Lamech, who uses these things for prideful evil purposes. Remember, Lamech kills people and then he sings songs about it. So he takes all this great technology and he uses it to glorify himself uh, rather than to glorify God. <clears throat> and I, I suggested last week that what you have going on in Genesis chapter 4, it's the very end of chapter 4, with Cain's line is this, is this ancient um, idea among the old people pagan nations of the Apkalu, uh, if you look at the old Mesopotamian religions especially. Uh, but it exists in, in pretty much all pagan religions that, that the gods uh, come down to humanity and the gods teach humanity technology. They, they reveal hidden knowledge to humanity. And what humanity ends up doing is growing and having these civilizations. Uh, with this hidden knowledge. Usually those gods who do this are judged by other gods because they shouldn't have done that. We talked about the Prometheus story uh, last last week, how Prometheus brought, uh, brought fire and, and gave it to humanity. We talked about the old Mesopotamian Apkalu, the sort of half-fish, half-human gods who rose up out of the river and, and taught uh, civilization and technology to humanity. What I think is happening in Genesis chapter 4 is it is reframing those old pagan religions and saying, uh, yes, this happened, as we'll see in Genesis 6. It certainly happened. But what you have there isn't the gods uh, coming down as the good guys, giving technology to humanity, and then other gods being the bad guys, punishing those gods for, for revealing that hidden knowledge. What you have are um, demons. Uh, giving technology to Cain's line, giving hidden knowledge to Cain's line with the intent that Cain's line is going to use this technology uh, so that they will kill each other. Uh, humanity is not ready for this hidden knowledge yet. So we see that's exactly what happens with Lamech. Lamech uses this technology to, uh, to kill. He uses this technology to boast and sing about himself. And... Uh, and there is great evil in the land. On the opposite side, or on the, the, the flip side of that coin, is Seth's line, Seth's righteous line, which you looked at in chapter 5. Uh, the seventh in line from Adam on Seth's side, who parallels Lamech, is Enoch. Enoch is righteous. We, we uh, looked in the New Testament, some places where it talks about Enoch, and, and Enoch is, is said to preach the gospel to a wicked and perverse generation. And God eventually takes him up into heaven, so Enoch doesn't see death. Uh, we know of another person, at, at least one other person in the Bible, that is taken up into heaven who doesn't see death. Y'all remember who it is? Elijah. Elijah the prophet. Yeah, Elijah the prophet is also taken up into heaven. He doesn't see death. Uh, there's a Christian tradition that Mary herself, the, the mother of our Lord, was also taken up into heaven. The Assumption of Mary, or as some people call it, the Dormition of Mary. 
but that's that's not in the scriptures, so so we, we can't say for sure whether that happened. But there is precedent for that. You know, it, it, it seems like these Enoch and Elijah characters are doing the work of God to, to such a degree that God blesses them to where they don't see death. So we have Cain's line and Seth's line uh, put together in chapters 4 and 5, respectively. Now we come to chapter 6. Are there any questions from last week or, or any questions from that quick introduction that I gave before we jump into chapter 6? Let's do it then. Chapter 6. When man began to multiply on the face of the land and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of men were attractive, and they took as their wives any they chose. Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh. His days shall be 120 years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days and also afterward. When the sons of God came into the daughters of man, and they bore children to them. These were the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. And let's stop there. The scripture says that we have two groups of people. We have the sons of God, and we have the daughters of men, and they are having relations with each other. There is something about this unholy union that brings about this group of people, creatures, whatever you want to call them, and they are, they are named Nephilim, N-E-P-H-I-L-I-M, in, in verse 4. And scripture says, the Nephilim were on the earth in those days and also afterward. Now keep that in mind, also afterward. When the sons of God came into the daughters of man and they bore children to them. So that came into the daughters of men is euphemism for they had sexual relations. And the children that they bore were these Nephilim people. And scripture describes them as these were the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. So what is going on here? There's a couple of different views, and I want to go through all the different views, and then I'll tell you which one I believe, and I'll tell you why I believe it. Basically, there's, there's two Sometimes three views. I won't really get into the third view, but uh, there's there's two two big views. The, the the one is that the sons of God is the righteous line of Seth. That would be the Sethites who come from Adam and Eve, and they see they representing sort of you know to speak anachronistically they represent the good righteous Christian people, and they see the daughters of men, which would be. Cain's unrighteous line, and they, you know, the Christian boys think that the unchristian girls are cuter than the Christian girls, and so they go over there and they start taking wives for themselves. And you have this this uh, this unholy union between the righteous line of Seth and the unrighteous line of Cain. Somehow that produces Nephilim. Now, Nephilim is a hard word. Uh, because it's left untranslated, at least in my, my, my uh, edition that I'm reading, which is the English Standard Version, it's untranslated. Does anybody have a different translation? I know you're reading a New King James. What does yours say? It says giants. Giants. We're going to talk about that in a second. What does yours say? Uh, spirit world. Does that make sense? Spirit world? Beings from the spirit. Beings from the spirit world. What, what version do you have? It'll be on the spine, probably. Uh, just the way. The way? Okay. 
John, are you reading the my, King James? No, mine says, I'm, I'm going to look and see what I got. But mine says Giants also. Giants, yes. So, so we have two issues that, with, that they, they need to be addressed. Or really two questions that pop up. First, who are the sons of God and the daughters of men? That's one question. Second, who are the Nephilim? And when we have both of those questions answered, then we'll be able to figure this text out. So if you follow the Seth and Cain view that the sons of God is the righteous line of Seth, the daughters of men is the unrighteous line of Cain, then you get to this Nephilim word. A lot of scholars have postulated that Nephilim comes from a related Hebrew word, Nephal, N-E-P-H-A-L, which means uh, to fall or or fall. It's a, it's a verb. To spare you from the details of how Hebrew language works, to get it into this form, Nephilim, uh, it would end up meaning uh, the fallen ones, or really it's more of a passive form. So the ones who were fallen upon is probably a better translation. And so some, some biblical scholars have said, okay, so what you have here is you have the righteous line of Seth, the unrighteous line of Cain are marrying, and the Nephilim that they uh, have from this unholy union are these fallen ones who are these mighty men of old, the men of renown. That is relatively, uh, at least in the history of translation, in the history of interpretation, that is relatively a new idea, actually. That was populated about the, th or, or popularized, I should say, in about the third century AD. And I know third century AD doesn't sound very new. <laughs> 1700 years old doesn't sound very new. But uh, when you look at the history of interpretation into the early centuries of the church, uh, Jesus's own day, and the Jewish scholars that lived in Jesus's day and before, that view was pretty unknown, actually, for the Jewish scholars of those days. So the second view then, and this is the view that, that carries Jewish history, is this view. And, and, and it is the view that, that I personally hold to. And it is that the sons of God are fallen angels. The sons of God are the fallen angels, which makes sense of the old Mesopotamian religions, right? We talked about the Upkalu last year or last week. So these are those Upkalu demons or these fallen angels who have given uh, secret knowledge to Cain's line. And they are now intermarrying with Cain's line. So the sons of God are, are fallen angels and they are marrying the daughters of men. When you look in the Hebrew, the sons of God, let me actually pull it up here, is Bene Elohim, which is literally Bene is son, Elohim, God. Sons of God. And the daughters of men, uh, the, the word man there is the word Ha'adam, uh, the very basic word for man. So you got the, the Bene Elohim and the daughters of Adam, Adam, uh, are intermarrying with each other. And therefore... What happens from this unholy union are these Nephilim creatures. And Nephilim, uh, like it's translated in your New King James Version and in the Old King James Version, is giants. So how do we get the word Nephilim? Well, I mentioned earlier uh, the Hebrew word Nephal means to fall. Uh, could it be Nephal? It's honestly probably not. I don't think it comes from the word Nephal. I think it comes from an Aramaic word. Nephilim, 
which means giants. You gotta remember these old languages, these old Semitic languages like Hebrew and Aramaic uh, are all interrelated with each other. So, so it would be like today if you're reading, if you're reading French and you come across a word that you don't know, what do you do? Well, you can look at the Italian language and see if there's a related word in Italian, and you could look at Spanish and see if there's a related word in Spanish, and look at Portuguese and see if there's a related word in Portuguese, because all of those languages come from Latin. Those are all Romance languages, so they all have the same root language that they spring from. And so if you find some other words that seem to resemble the French word, and you know what those words mean in those other languages, it's likely that's what it means in the French language. So the same thing is true with Aramaic and Hebrew. The word Nephilim in Aramaic means giants. And the way you would pluralize giant in Hebrew is add I-M. I-M is how you pluralize words in Hebrew. So Nephilim with the I-M is giants. So the sons of God take, the sons of God see that the daughters of men and they take wives for themselves. And this is what God says to that. My spirit shall not abide in man forever, for, his, for he is flesh. His days shall be 120 years. That means in 120 years, I'm making a pronouncement. 120 years from now, I'm destroying the earth. And I'm going to destroy it with a flood. So that's how bad it gets in the earth. It gets so bad, so wicked, and so evil that God has to destroy the world and start over. The Seth Canite or, or the Sethite Canite view, in my mind, just doesn't seem to satisfy that requirement. That if if regular human beings who were a part of Cain's line married with regular human beings who were part of Seth's line, that doesn't seem to merit God's response, does it? That He's going to destroy the world and start over. However. If angels or fallen angels are intermarrying with human women and producing these giant creatures, these Nephilim, it does seem to merit the response that God is going to have to destroy this world and start over with Noah and his sons. So let me pause there and, and, sit and ask if there's any questions or thoughts on that. I want to read something real quick. I just thought about this. This is from the book of 1st Enoch. This is not Bible, but this is ancient Jewish history. So this book was around before Jesus walked the earth. So this is how the Jews understood their, their, their own history. Uh, kind of historiography, legend, mythology, whatever you want to call it. Uh, book of 1st Enoch. And this is how Enoch interprets Genesis chapter 6. And it came to pass when the children of men had multiplied in those and uh, had multiplied that in those days were born unto them beautiful and comely daughters and the angels, the children of heaven, saw and lusted after them and, and said to one another, come, let us choose wives from among the children of men and beget us children. And, and Simjaza was their leader. And they went and did the deed and picking up at verse seven. And all the others together with them took unto themselves wives, and each chose for himself one, and they began to do unto they get began to go in unto them and to defile themselves with them. And they taught them charms and enchantments, and the cutting of roots, and made them acquainted with plants. Sounds like what's happening with uh, Cain in Genesis chapter four. Cain's line is learning metallurgy and all this other stuff. 
And they became pregnant, and they bare great giants, whose height was 3,000 L's. Now, that's like several thousand feet, so that's, that's probably a bit of a... <laughs> it's probably, that's probably a, a bit of a stretch, but... Uh, they bore giants who consumed all the acquisitions of men, and, and when men could no longer sustain them, the giants turned against them and devoured mankind. And they began to sin against birds and beasts and reptiles and fish, and to devour one another's flesh and drink the blood. Then the earth laid accusation against the lawless ones. And in chapter 9, we see the angels, holy angels, stepping in and putting an end to this. Then Michael, Michael the archangel, Uriel, Raphael, and Gabriel looked down from heaven and saw much blood being shed upon the earth and all lawlessness being wrought upon the earth. And they said to one another, The earth made without inhabitant cries the voice of their crying up to the gates of heaven. And now you, and now to you, the holy ones of heaven, the souls of men make their suit, saying, Bring our cause before the Most High. So they intervene and they cast these evil angels, these fallen angels, into the abyss. And there's New Testament. We read this last week, so I'm not going to go into it again. But if you want to chase it down from last week. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 19. 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 4. And Jude 6 all speak of the great evil that happened before the days of Noah. And I'll speak of angels that were put in darkness or put in chains, put into the abyss. Sometimes talks about chains of gloomy darkness awaiting for the final judgment. So now let's take a deep dive <laughs> into the world of giants. It's so a lot of people read this and they don't understand how angels and humans can cohabitate with each other, right? Angels are spirits. We can probably safely assume that they don't have the right DNA to produce offspring with human women. And if we think that's what's going on, I think we're, we're misunderstanding the text. It's not that these angels just showed up to women and tried to have relations with them and then they were able to conceive and bear children. That's not what's going on. So what is going on? Where did these Nephilim come from? And, and, and how, does this, how, how does this even work, right? How does this even work? Well, have you ever read the Epic of Gilgamesh? Yes. Epic of Gilgamesh. There is a strange, strange line in the Epic of Gilgamesh. Uh, it's in the opening, the opening introduction or the opening chapter. And it describes Gilgamesh as being one of these mighty men, these men of renown. And it describes him as being two-thirds God, one-third human. Now we think two-thirds, one-third, that's not how things work, right? <laughs> if you have a demigod, it would be half God, half man, right? That's, that's how it should work. But he's two-thirds God, one-third human. How does that work? Well, let me explain it to you. Archaeologists have uncovered evidence of these giant ritual beds and ziggurats about 15 feet long. Now, it's in a ziggurat, so that's a place of worship. Why do you have a bed in a place of worship, right? You don't usually have beds at churches or synagogues or mosques, right? So what are these beds for? These beds, like in a lot of ancient pagan religions, are uh, for ritualized intercourse with the temple prostitutes, basically. So the way this ritual would work, this I'm, I'm going to call it this Nephilim ritual, 
is a human male, sometimes a human female, but usually a human male who was the king of his tribe would go into this ceremonial ritual bed and he would put on the mask of his god. And in that moment, he becomes possessed by this god. And then the temple prostitute comes in and they have their ritualized ceremony. The offspring then from this ceremony, it'd have three parents. One parent would be the king, who the king was always considered a god, right? If you look at Pharaoh and, and some of these older Egyptian religions and some of these older Mesopotamian religions, the king is always considered a god. Even Caesar is considered a god. He'd have the king. He would have the demon or, or the god of his clan, who we know are demons. And he would have the woman, his mother. That's how you get two-thirds god, one-third human. And that is how Gilgamesh is described in the Epic of Gilgamesh. So, I believe that is what is happening here in Genesis 6. It is getting so bad that this Nephilim ritual is happening in this culture. We know that actually this ritual happened all over the world now. We've, we've, we've dug up some of these things. It, it's happened in Japan. We know it happens in Mesoamerica. It happens in, in cultures that aren't related to each other. So we ask, well, how did they learn this? You know, but this isn't something that you just wake up one day and say, hey, let me try this weird thing, right? You have to be taught how to do this, right? Who's going to teach you how to do it? The demons. And that's why it's, it, it is all over the world where we find this ritual. It is not only in the Mesopotamian religions and then the religions where they spread out, you know, but if we see it in Asian religions, Old Asian religions, we see it in, uh, in like I said, Mesoamerican religions and things. And so the, uh, the sons of God then are these, uh, these evil spirits that possess humans. And as they have relations with other humans, the daughters of men, they produce this evil, completely demonized child called Nephilim. Which, as we said earlier, Nephilim from the Aramaic word Nephilim, meaning giant. So these are how the giants are made. So the Bible is depicting giants not only as very tall people, it is certainly large in stature, but also fully demonized and fully evil. It's like the worst kind of person that you can come to. This is, they're they're demon-possessed from birth. That's why God says, my spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh. His day shall be 120 years. This is how bad it gets on the earth. Verse 5. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was, on, was only evil continually. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. We'll learn next week that Noah is described as a righteous man and a blameless man, meaning 
not only was he kept from these rituals that were going on, these Nephilim rituals, so he's pure in that way, his bloodline is pure, but he is righteous uh, before God. He is walking with the Lord. He's not walking according to his culture. He is a righteous man, and he is uh, attempting to to have righteous offspring with his, with his righteous wife. And we know that he has three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. And next week we're going to learn that Noah, that God calls Noah to uh, build an ark. And he's going to flood the earth and start the human race over with Noah. But we're not there yet. That's all next week. So let's return to verse 4. The Nephilim, or the giants, were on the earth in those days and also afterward, when the sons of God came into the daughters of man and they bore children to them. Now, there's this interesting line. The the giants were on the earth in those days and also afterward, meaning the, the giants that were destroyed in the flood come back. They come back after the flood. How do they come back? Through the Nephilim ritual, through this pagan ziggurat temple prostitute ritual because the demons continue to teach humans how to do this disgusting corrupt thing and we have evidence of giants in the bible let me let me give you a quick thumbnail sketch it's right here in front of me a quick thumbnail sketch of giants in the bible Sometimes we can read Genesis 6 and and sort of see this Nephilim thing as kind of a throwaway line. It's like, oh, there's this weird thing going on, and then the flood comes, and it's all good. But this actually becomes a major theme uh, throughout the rest of the Pentateuch, uh, the first five books of the Bible, particularly in the Canaanite conquest. When the Israelites go into the Promised Land, they have to deal with these giants. And they are called by God, by Yahweh, to destroy these giants. So we already see in Genesis 6 that the sons of God go into the daughters of man and bear children. The result of this unholy union is Nephilim, or giants. By the way, the Greek translation of the Old Testament Hebrew, uh, usually called the Septuagint, which was translated just a few hundred years before Jesus was on the earth. Uh, it's likely, actually, the Bible that Jesus and the apostles themselves read from. It's the Greek translation. Instead of using the word Nephilim, it actually uses the word gigantes in the Greek, which is where we get the word gigantic and the word giant. So uh, the, the Greek translation is, is in line with this. We, then we see God flood the earth and he, uh, to end the extreme debauchery and evil that has happened on the earth. Genesis 14 now, just a few chapters later. This is after God has called Abraham. So God calls Abraham in Genesis 12. In Genesis 14, there is a, a man named Chedorlaomer who defeats the giants called the Rephaim and several other clans to include the Zuzim, the Umim, the Horites, the Amalekites, and the Amorites. The Zuzim are probably the same giant clan mentioned in Deuteronomy chapter 2, verse 30, called the Zamzumim. The Emim are mentioned in Deuteronomy 10, verse 10, excuse me, Deuteronomy 2, verse 10, as a giant clan. And the Amorites are also likely one of these giant clans. The Old Testament prophet Amos, actually, chapter 2, verse 9, uh, says he describes them as being as tall as the cedars. We also know that Og, king of Bashan, is an Amorite king, and scripture comes right out and says he is a giant king. 
It describes his bed as being 15 feet, uh, or I'm sorry, it describes his bed as being nine cubits in, in length, which is about 13 to 15 feet. We ask, why did you describe his bed? Why not just tell us how tall he was? But we know with this Nephilim ritual on these ziggurats, it required a bed, didn't it? It required this bed for ritual sexual debauchery with temple prostitutes. So that's why it describes his bed. Og was very much involved in this pagan ritual. And his bed's about 13 to 15 feet long. So Abraham defeats Chedorlaomer in Genesis chapter 14, and he rescues his nephew Lot. In the book of Numbers chapter 13, we see the Nephilim mentioned again. Uh, this is when, the, uh, when Israel is right on the cusp of the promised land. They send 12 spies into the land to go spy out the land and, 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 and bring a report back. Ten of those spies come back with a negative report. They say, this is scary. There's giants in the land. There's the Nephilim, the sons of, Akim, of, of, of the, there's the Anakim there. They're going to destroy us. We're like grasshoppers in their eyes. We can't go in there. Two of those spies give a good report, Caleb and Joshua. Both Caleb and Joshua are like, yep, that's exactly right. The Nephilim are there and they're giants and they're big and scary, but we got God on our side, so we can destroy them. If God's telling us to go get them, let's get them. Unfortunately, the 10 spies who give the bad report end up persuading the Jews not to go into the promised land, and that's when they're condemned or cursed to, to, to wander in the wilderness for 40 years before that generation dies off. So, But the Nephilim are mentioned there in Numbers chapter 13. Uh, this uh, report is confirmed by Moses in Deuteronomy chapter 9. Uh, we get to Deuteronomy chapter 3, and we have Og. I mentioned him just a moment ago, but Og is mentioned by name as an Amorite king of Bashan, and he's defeated by the Israelites. Og's bed is said to be nine cubits long, 13 to 15 feet. And, uh, and interestingly, archaeologists have recovered beds like this. In 1918, Gustav Dahlman discovered an Amen, A-M-M-A-N, which is in Jordan, he discovered a bed which approximately matched the dimensions of Og's bed. So we know these beds really existed. The Amorites, remember uh, Og is a king of the Amorites, are named for their god Amuru or Martu in Akkadian and Sumerian languages. He is the storm weather deity and husband of Asherah. Does Asherah ring bells? Oftentimes the, even the Israelites, when they get into the debauchery before they are exiled, uh, they are. They worship the goddess Asherah. Asherah poles are oftentimes popping up in Israel. Asherah poles, not not to be gross, but Asherah poles are are literally um, a phallic symbol that you would gather around and uh, worship Asherah, who is uh, who was the the goddess of um, fertility. fertility. Yeah, she's the fertility goddess. So she's represented by these phallic symbols. You go and worship Asherah. And oftentimes there was ritualized sexual practices involved in the worship of Asherah. So that is what Amuru, who is the god of the Amorites, he's married to Asherah. So you got this god Amuru and this goddess Asherah. And uh, Og is a king of the Amorites, and he's described as one of these giants. Some scholars believe actually that a Baal, who comes later, we, we see the Israelites dealing with Baal a lot, that Baal and Amuru are related. And uh, like they're the same God, kind of like how we have a lot of Greek gods and Roman gods that are the same God, like Jupiter and Zeus are, are kind of the same God. A lot of people think that's what's going on with Amuru and Baal. In Joshua 11, 
Uh, this is skipping ahead in, into the Canaanite conquest. Joshua continues his war against the giant tribes, but it says he does not destroy the Anakim, who are the sons of Anak, who are part of the Rephaim, who are descended of these Nephilim, these giant tribes. He does not destroy the Anakim in Gaza, Gath, or Ashdod. Does Gath ring a bell? Gath is where the most famous giant of the Bible comes from, Goliath. Goliath of Gath. And the reason he is spared is because his people are not destroyed in the book of Joshua chapter 11. Joshua spares Gaza and Gath and Ashdod. So they continue to be a thorn in Israel's side for the next several hundred years. Uh, in Joshua 15, we see that Caleb, remember Joshua and Caleb were the two spies who gave the positive report. So Joshua and Caleb are all about defeating these giants. They're, they're not afraid of them at all. In fact, Caleb, when they go back into the land, Caleb's pushing 80 by this time. When he first went into the land, he was about 40 years old. And then they have to go wander the wilderness for 40 years. And now they come back into the land and Caleb turns to their new leader, Joshua. And Joshua says, where do you want to settle, Caleb? You know, 80-year-old Caleb by this time. And he says, you know where I want to settle? I want to settle in the mountain of the giants because I am going to destroy them all. So Caleb at 80 years old goes into the mountains where he knows the giants are. And he says, I'm going to kill you because my God's better than yours, basically. <laughs> Yahweh is going to deliver you into the hand, uh, into my hands. And that's exactly what he does. Uh, Caleb's a great man of faith. So Caleb defeats, by name, Scripture mentions them, Shishai, Ahimon, and Talmai, who are described as the sons of Enoch, the remnant of the Enochim. The Enochim are from the Rephaim, and the Rephaim come from the Nephilim, mentioned here in Genesis chapter 6. Finally, as I mentioned before, we have our most famous giant, Goliath. That's who David kills in 1 Samuel chapter 14. He is from Gath, as I mentioned. He is called, in 1 Samuel chapter 14, he's called Gibor, which is Greek for the mighty men, or excuse me, Hebrew. Hebrew for one of the mighty men. He is one of the mighty men of the Philistines. That's the same word used here in Genesis 6. These were the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. These were the mighty men. These were the Giborim, the mighty men. Something interesting about Goliath, I know I'm getting off topic here, but I just think this is really fantastic. Goliath is described as wearing scale armor. He looks like he has scales all over him. Oftentimes, you'll see that translated as coat of mail, but it's actually, in Hebrew, it's translated scales. And that gives Goliath a connection to snakes. So what's, what you have here in 1 Samuel chapter 14 is Goliath is pictured as the serpent. Remember back in Genesis 3, God said that he would send a man from the seed of the woman who would crush the head of the serpent. So Goliath is this serpent pictured in, pictured, and David, therefore, is the seed of the woman who's going to crush the head of the serpent. And that is literally what David does with his sling. He crushes the head of Goliath. And then he cuts off his head with Goliath's own sword. So that is foreshadowing what Jesus is going to do to the serpent. That Jesus is going to crush the head of, of the serpent, Satan. And, uh, and he's going to do that through his life, death, and resurrection on the cross. Finally, we see David's mighty men <clears throat> finish off the four remaining giants in the book of 2 Samuel, chapter 21. That's also recorded in 1 Chronicles, chapter 20. These four giants are described as Rapha or Raphaim. Some scholars think that's Goliath's four brothers. 
or at least they're related to Goliath. Y'all remember how many stones David grabbed before he went to battle Goliath? Scripture says he gathered five smooth stones. Why do you think he gathered five, not six? Why do you think he gathered five, not four? It could be that he thought he was going to have to kill Goliath and his four brothers who were going to come out in the fight. Because we know he had four brothers. He didn't kill the four brothers, though. His mighty men later kills Goliath's four brothers. Whether they're brothers or cousins or whatever, but they're all a part of the same giant tribe. So the giants, these Nephilim, are a thorn in the side to Israel. And when Israel is told to go into the promised land, they are told to kill the giants. Why? Because these giants are pictured as as wicked as a person can possibly be. Demonized from birth through this, through the way that they were conceived, with the king being possessed by his God and then having the ritual relations with the temple prostitute. Two-thirds God, one-third human. That's what we got going on in Genesis 6. There are giants in the land, and God has to destroy the land and start over with Noah. But unfortunately, the giants do come back. Now, what does this mean for us today? I think this is actually a good lesson for us in God's grace and God's mercy. I sometimes will watch serial killer documentaries because I I find that fascinating. And I always get super creeped out when I watch them. And I'm I'm usually troubled for a few days after I watch them. But I'll still watch them from time to time. And and I, I think about some of the most gruesome serial killers like Ted Bundy. Or some of these who were cannibals, you know, actually eating the, the flesh of, of, their, of their dead. I, there's one serial killer I, I can't remember anyway. I don't really want to go into what he did. But there was a lot of uh, ritualized, with this particular one, there was Dahmer. Jeffrey Dahmer. I, I think it's Jeffrey Dahmer. There's, there was a lot of uh, satanic rituals going on that, that, that they uncovered in his house with the corpses. And he was eating them and all kinds of stuff. So serial killers are, are sort of... I'm not saying they are Nephilim, but but it, I think of them as being sort of like the worst a human person can become. I've read some, a little bit of literature on, on some of these serial killers, and it seems to me that, yes, they have lots of personality disorders. Yes, psychologically, they are very troubled. But a lot of that, I think, is also they are possessed by these demons. That's why they can become so evil. And that's not to discount psychology at all. I, I think you know, psychology can help a lot. But also there's a spiritual element to this as well. Remember, we live in an enchanted world, right? Demons are real. Demons are out there. We see these serial killers and, and, and we think, wow, I could never become that bad. But that's not true. We need to remember that we have every potential to become just as evil as they become because we're human just like they are, right? Scripture describes the human condition as, as one of fall. We are a fallen. We live in a fallen world. Our mind is corrupted. Our, our heart is corrupted. There's this, this, this idea of, of, of total depravity that, that exists inside every person. That doesn't mean that every person is as wicked as they could possibly be, but that means that the level of depravity has touched every aspect of what it means to be a human. It is only by the grace of God that we don't become as evil as we could possibly be. So 
The Nephilim, I think, are, are a good reminder for us to say our prayers. A good reminder for us to, as, as Paul writes to the Philippians, to work out your salvation with fear and trembling because it is God who works in you to do his will and to do his good pleasure. It is an invitation for us to, to, uh, to cooperate with the Holy Spirit, to, to allow God uh, to, to, to remove all the obstacles uh, in our own life so, so God can freely work in us to grow us in holiness and to strengthen us so that we don't become the worst possible version of ourselves that we could be. Are there any thoughts or questions? Why does this no longer exist? Why do demons know? Why, why does this no longer happen? Yeah. Great question. So there is some evidence that this still happens in Japan. Christianity never really took root in Japan. That's not to say that Japanese people are super wicked or anything like that. I'm not suggesting that at all. But uh, I, I want to say in the early, early 1900s, 1910 or, or, or so, the emperor is said to have done one of these Nephilim rituals. It's not described. It's very hush-hush. But, but, uh, but we do know that he had some sort of ritualized relationship, to put it kindly, and, uh, and where he invited the, the, I think it was the sun god or something into his quarters. And that's sort of as far as, that's as far as the emperor wanted to go with it, as far as like revealing exactly what happened behind closed doors. So that has largely today been, I think, uh, snuffed out, but that, that did happen as late as 1910, 1915, something like that. I can't remember exactly when, when that ritual happened. I think to answer the, the, the main part of your question is, why isn't this happening anymore? As Christianity goes forward, Christianity conquers. And where Christianity takes root in society, these pagan rituals cease to happen. Christianity has largely gone throughout the entire world. So that's why we don't see this happening that much anymore. For example, you know, let's, let's take this strange Nephilim ritual out of the question entirely. Let's just talk about demon possession, something as simple as demon possession. In America, let's say 100 years ago, when, we were, uh, when our uh, country was much more Christian than it is today, we, we didn't see a lot of these fantastic things happening, these, these people getting possessed and stuff. It still happened from time to time, but it was on a very, very small scale. Whereas in other places of the world, like Africa, uh, where Christianity had not yet taken a deep root, demon possession and things like that were much more common. They still had witch doctors and et cetera, and on all these different tribal cultures where, where this thing was happening pretty regularly. As Christianity has taken a greater root in Africa, this is becoming less and less. Wherever Christ goes, he conquers. He conquers the spirit world. As an aside to that, in America, we're seeing America become less and less of a Christian nation. And uh, we are seeing more and more spiritual, spiritual warfare with, with the evil spirits, even here in America. Wherever Christ goes, he conquers this. And so wherever Christianity went, in the early church, the early couple centuries of the church, as it spread out to all the world, these pagan nations just left their places beyond. Even as far as uh, when it comes to like pagan sacrifice of animals and things like that, even by the time you get to Constantine, which is early 300s, 
who be, before he became a Christian emperor of Rome, even as a, a pagan, he, he, he already was like, he didn't like the whole idea of sacrificing an animal. He thought that was, you know, not really kosher. Now that's, that's not really okay, to, even, to Con, even to Constantine's pagan mind, because Christianity was already starting to seep into the culture and change the culture. Eventually, Constantine becomes saved. And he uh, he endorses Christianity and, and makes and legalizes Christianity for the Roman for the Roman Empire. My son had Gilgamesh to, as a required reading in school. I'm so sorry that he had to read that. Oh, it's 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 good to read this stuff. It's not bad to read this stuff. You know, this this is how the Mesopotamians understood their their culture. So it's it's good to understand that. I read Gilgamesh this week, uh, reread it. I, I read it when I was a freshman in college. I reread it this week to prepare for this. And um, it's, I mean, it, it, you do see Gilgamesh described as being, the Mesopotamians don't describe him as evil because in Mesopotamian thought, this is their great hero. This is their great king, you know. But uh, Gilgamesh does pretty much do whatever he wants to, whenever he wants to, with whatever woman he wants to. So, if you read between the lines, you can see there's a lot of debauchery in these great heroes of old. So, Genesis 6 is reframing a lot of these old legends, the Gilgamesh legend. A lot of these old legends says, here's what really happened, and it's not good. It's not good that this unholy union happened and you got these Nephilim giants in the world. In fact, it was so bad, that, and it got so bad on the earth that God destroys the earth. And even in the Gilgamesh, you have a flood narrative. And a lot of old old cultures, you have a flood story. And uh, what what God, excuse me, what the Bible is doing is it's reframing all these old pagan religions and giving you the real version of things. It's not saying, well, that stuff never happened. It's saying, oh, no, it happened. <laughs> yeah, it actually did happen. But here's what really happened. You know, when these evil things happen in the world, it's not good. It's actually really bad. And the flood comes. And God has to destroy the earth and start over with Noah. But Noah was a righteous man and blameless in his generations. So we'll pick up with the story of Noah next week and leave it there. Thank you for joining me in Reading Genesis. If you'd like to contact me, I'm available at reading.genesis.podcast at gmail.com. And now, may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, and the love of God, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with us all evermore. Amen.